The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right, welcome as I'm teaching this live tonight. This is the first time. I congratulate you. You are the inaugural group for our first midweek Wednesday night live. Thank you. Yes, no, no, please remain seated. No, no standing ovations. Not necessary. Not yet anyway. So, we are at week 24 in our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we're picking it up at chapter 11. And let's remind ourselves where we've been, because today is a crucial um, step in the Gospel of Mark journey. We've learned that Mark is basically uh, broken up into three acts. Strangely enough, Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. We learned the first chunk of, of Mark is uh, the theme of it, could, if it was a chapter, it would be called, uh, Who is this man? And that's how the Gospel of Mark began. Mark is asking and answering the question through Jesus' life, through his activity, through his miracles, through his teaching. And the whole question is being asked, Who is this man? What authority? How does he do these things? That's Act 1. Who is this man? And then... The answer to that question comes, I think it was about chapter 8 in Caesarea Philippi, where uh, the question is answered because Peter sa- Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. And flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but uh, my, my Father has revealed that to you. And so who is this man? The answer was, he's the Messiah. But then chapter 2, or act 2 of the gospel is, so who is the Messiah? Because the Messiah that they were anticipating, they were expecting, is not the Messiah that God sent. The Messiah that they were anticipating in first century Judaism was a political Messiah. He was a new King David. Uh, He was the Davidic Messiah. And so he was going to come. He was going to take over Israel. He was going to destroy those dirty Romans. And he was going to set up Israel once again as a triumphant nation in the land. That's what they were expecting. This political Messiah. And for the next several chapters, Jesus begins to unpack, no, I'm the Messiah. That's what he said privately. He still wasn't saying this publicly. I'm the Messiah, but, uh, but I'm not the Messiah that you think. Or the Messiah is not who you think. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus did not publicly reveal his Messiahship. Because the people um, kept trying to, to get him to do this. Even the, the demons, if you remember, would say, well, I know who you are. And Jesus would make them be silent. Why is that? Because if Jesus had um, revealed his Messiahship too early on, then all the people would have put him on their shoulders and carried him in Jerusalem to to take over again. And that would have been completely um, a misuse of his power, of his authority. The Romans would have come in and they would have killed him and destroyed him early on and ruined the whole mission. So Jesus didn't want a public declaration of his Messiahship because it was too early, too soon in the journey. He had much to teach, much to do, much to reveal about himself and the nature of God and the nature of of the Messiah. So what Jesus then had to do right away after Peter's confession, you're the Messiah in Act 2, what what is the first thing Jesus say? The Messiah is going to, you know, the Son of Man is the title he used for himself from Daniel, the son of man is going to 
be uh, captured, he's going to be uh, condemned, he's going to be crucified, but on the third day he's going to rise. Three times he had to say that. And each time they didn't get it. They just didn't get it because it was like water off a duck's back. It was just, it rolled off of them. It was like, you know, water on solid, dry ground. It just bubbled off because it, they couldn't absorb it. They couldn't understand it. It wasn't what they were anticipating. But that was act two. Jesus kept coming back at it, coming back at it. Who's the Messiah? He's not who you think he is. Which brings us to today. Today, in the passage in, starting in Mark chapter 11, is the beginning of act three. And we said act three is essentially what we'll call the passion of Christ. Passion meaning the, the suffering. It's the Passion Week. It's his last week, Sunday to Sunday, if you will. Uh, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday is the act three of the Gospel of Mark. And that is be- when he enters Jerusalem and all that happens in Jerusalem in that final week. And that's where we get to today. Now, let me remind you, if you've been journeying with us in this, about the nature of a, go- of a gospel. You know, what is a gospel? We learned from the very first week that a gospel is essentially a story about Jesus. That's the best definition of a gospel that I could come up with, or that scholars, I didn't come up with that, scholars have come up with. It's a story about Jesus, because a gospel is a blend of two genres. It's a blend of first century biography, along with first century preaching about Jesus. So there was a whole genre, genre meaning a family of literature, called a first century biography, and there were kind of rules that went with this first century biography. So there was a combination of it being a first century biography and also a a, a compilation of, of first century preaching that was going on about Jesus from the early church. Now remember, we learned that a first century biography, none of these are blanks yet. I know you're just dying to fill in that first blank. Just relax, I'll let you know when that blank's coming. A first century biography was not necessarily in chronological order. That's crucial to understand. In fact, I remember I had never been taught this, and way back in the 1985, uh, when I first graduated and, uh, from college and was pastoring on a staff, I decided that I was going to take the four Gospels and I was going to combine them into one Gospel. I was going to read them all and do a lesson and teach them on the chronological journey of Jesus just by putting all the Gospels together. And early on in that game, I realized, whoa, the Gospels don't always agree. So on the chronology here, because I had an understanding that Gospels were the chronological events, meaning on April 1st, this happened, then on April 2nd, this happened, then on April 3rd, this happened. That's chronological in order. But that's not what a, a first century Gospel was. It didn't have to be in chronological order. What you could do as a, as a biographer in first century was, and you could do this in the 21st century too, is you had a theme that you were trying to present. It was historical, but you would take the historical events and you would arrange them according to the theme that you wanted to highlight. You would arrange them according to the the aspect uh, of the nature of the individual that you were highlighting. So you could just put all of his healing uh, events together and call that a gospel. You could just put a bunch of his teaching together and you wouldn't even have to do it in order of his teaching. You could do it thematically. It would be like taking all the sermons I've ever done at Broadway in the last 11 years and pulling together themes on apologetics or on um, healing or whatever. And you could combine them and it wouldn't be in chronological order, but it would be arranged according to themes. That's what first century biographies were, and that's what the gospel writers have done. 
And Mark is more of a thematic presentation. It was more a grouping together of historical events uh, as a way to communicate this theme. Why do I say all this? I say all this because in Mark's gospel, what we're about to read in Mark 11 is the first time Jesus has visited Jerusalem. The way Mark has packaged things, Jesus has gradually made his way from the north, from Galilee, and the regions up there, even north of Galilee. And then after this happened in Caesarea Philippi, Act 1 ended in Caesarea Philippi, which is northeast Israel. And, uh, and then Mark has Jesus making his way back into Capernaum, that's just on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then he has him making his way down the Jordan River to um, Perea, which is the east of the Dead Sea. And then he has him going through Jericho and then west up to Jerusalem. That's the geographical pathway that Mark has Jesus going. And he has him now in Mark 11, the first time he's entering Jerusalem. Now the truth is, Jesus has been in Jerusalem many times before this. I remember as, as a little boy he was in Jerusalem. He got lost there once, remember? So he's been in Jerusalem many times. Mark is not claiming that this is the only time Jesus was in Jerusalem. This is simply the only trip that Mark mentions. So that's important. That's why it's important to understand that. John, in his gospel, has Jesus visiting Jerusalem on many occasions, as any Jewish male would do. Mark is simply focusing upon Jesus' final visit to Jerusalem in order to emphasize the flow of the story of Christ's life from Act 1 to Act 2 to Act 3, okay? And the dramatic escalation and conclusion that Act 3 leads to. So we pick up the story in, um, in Mark chapter 11 as the author describes Jesus' public and dramatic entrance uh, into Jerusalem as the Davidic Messiah. And this will be followed tonight by uh, Jesus' symbolic acts of judgment against the nation of Israel and its religious elite. He even will have an act of judgment against the temple. So let's turn to Mark chapter 11 and what we're calling on your outline, letter A, the preparation to enter Jerusalem. Let's read verses 1 to 6. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Now let's stop there. They are traveling, as your outline says, there you go, here's your first one. Everybody breathe. <laughs> they are traveling west and uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. So they're traveling west, and they're traveling uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Let me give you sort of a cross section so you can kind of understand what's going on. And I really do hope that many of you come with us to Israel in March of 2020 because in all sincerity, going there revolutionizes your life and you will read scriptures in a completely different way. So, this is a very rudimentary drawing, but think of this, this is in, uh, this is the temple, okay? The, the temple, okay. So that's the temple, that's on the uh, Mount Zion, that's in, in Jerusalem. This is the Kidron Valley. 
Okay. Um, and now there's a sort of a highway that goes through now, there now. But the Kidron Valley, this was the Mount of Olives. When we think mountains here in BC, we think giant Mount of Olives is just a big hill. It's, it's sort of a mountain, but we wouldn't call it a mountain. But it was called the Mount of Olives, just like this is called Temple Mount. Okay, um, But it's just a big hill in BC terms. On the side of Mount of Olives, this is the, the Garden of Gethsemane. I've walked this many times. To get from the temple to the Garden of Gethsemane, you can walk it in 10 minutes. Very close. Okay, And then scholars believe that, uh, and, and this is when you see pictures of all this now as just tombstones. You know, you see these famous, just a, a, a hill full of tombstones. And, um, and so is this, by the way. But, um, and then many scholars think this is possibly where Bethpage was where we just heard about. And over on this side of the Mount of Olives was Bethany. That's where Lazarus lived, Simon the leper, um, Mary and Martha. Okay. And way down here, and this is like, oh, I don't want to quote a number. It's a couple thousand feet below, this is Jericho. And this is quite a ways away, but I'm just trying to show you from a side, the, so they went from Jericho and they climbed up and he, he's here now at Bethany is where he's starting. Then he's going to go over Mount of Olives into Bethpage, probably where they got the colt. Then he's going to walk into the Kidron Valley and go into the temple. Just so you can get a sense. It is from Bethany to the temple is two miles. Just so you can get a sense. That'll help you as we're about to read all this. Okay? So they're traveling west and uphill uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Number two, Jesus is preparing to make a very symbolic and public statement. So Jesus is preparing to make a very symbolic and public statement. Let's read uh, again uh, verses 1b to 3. 1b meaning the second half of verse 1. Um, uh, even... Let's go with two. He says to them, go into the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. Um, bring the colt and uh, bring it back to me. Now, here's the question. From the Mount of Olives, overlooking here, he sends them to get a donkey to bring it back. What's up with this? Up until this point in the gospel, there's no mention that Jesus has ever ridden upon any animal. So why is he making a point of riding upon this specific one here, and why now? Notice the details. He said, a colt which no one has ever ridden. Why does he specify that? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. Around your tables for the next five minutes, okay, uh, is this. In the, in the next small section on your outlines, small points, you know, um, one, two, three, and four, you see those points? Um, in those, I provided some verses. I want you to take a couple moments, either on your own if you'd like, or around a table with your partners around your table, and introduce yourself to each other, and look up these verses and see what you can learn regarding the symbolism of Jesus' actions here. So there's some clues in those verses I've given you. And in five minutes, I'm going to fill in the blanks and answer the clues, but you're going to be ahead of me. In fact, yeah, just do that. Look up those verses, and uh, we'll pick it up in five minutes. Go ahead. All right, folks. Let's pick it up. Let's fill in these blanks. We're returning now. 
So, a colt no one has ever ridden. Why is Jesus making a point of riding this specific animal at this specific time? What's he trying to communicate here? Why is he making a big deal out of this? Okay. First one, this particular animal symbolized purity. Okay, that's the first one. It symbolized, well, good, I'm sure he did. In fact, I should just let you folks yell at the answers to me here. (laughs) Symbolized purity. Number two, such animals were used in sacrifices. Okay, they were used in sacrifices. Again, so the purity symbolizing the purity of Christ's life. The sacrifices, of course, prophesying or uh, symbolizing Christ's sacrificial act that's about to take place. Okay. Thirdly, such animals were used for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Such animals were used for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Again, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. Think about this, what's being symbolized here. By Jesus being carried in on this animal that carried the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which, you know, with the mercy seat and so on, the seraphim and everything, all of that Jesus is being carried in the same way, symbolizing the presence of God is being carried into Jerusalem. And fourthly, such an animal was prophesied to be used by the Messiah. Okay? Such an animal was prophesied to be used by the Messiah. So get this, folks. This is crucial. Up until now, Jesus has been avoiding public association with the Messianic title. Now, as he enters Jerusalem, he's planning his own messianic parade. So what's going on here? This is an intentional escalation. So in other words, it's time for Jesus to go public. The moment has come. He's avoided it up until now because he knew the moment that he went public with this messianic title, the crowds would implode on him. The government would implode on him. The religious authorities would escalate their intensity of hatred against him um, and, and all of that. So up until now, he's been pushing it off. The time wasn't right. But now he knows the time is right. And he's known this for a while because remember we saw a week or two ago that as he's heading towards Jerusalem, he was determined. He said his Face like a flint, one passage says, towards Jerusalem. He was determined. The intensity was rising. He knew what was coming. And now he's revealing it. It's it's the great reveal here. So let's pick it up, verses 4 to 6. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, "Uh, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them so, and the people let them go. Um, So number three, things happened just as Jesus told them. Things happened just as Jesus told them. Quick question though, why did these people agree so quickly, the owners of this animal? Like seriously, you've got your, it's like you've got your car there that's brand new, it's never been ridden by anyone, just off the lot, and someone comes along and says, um, they open the door, and you say, hey, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. All right, where you go. Like, <laughs> that's kind of what's happening here. So why would this, they, they agree so quickly? Well, possibly because Jesus, on a previous visit to Jerusalem, had made prearrangements. That's possible. Or possibly it's a demonstration of Jesus' remarkable authority. Okay? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But either way, Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is prepared and in full control of the events here. 
This final week and all that's about to happen is not a matter of Jesus getting overwhelmed by the situation or overwhelmed by the circumstances. Jesus is in charge, and that's what Mark is showing right from the beginning here. Okay, the preparation to enter Jerusalem is now complete. So now letter B, the approach to Jerusalem, the actual approach. He's prepared, now he approaches. The events we're about to read happened on what has come to be known as Palm Sunday. So literally, as I'm teaching this, this is the Wednesday between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So these events happened last Sunday, if you can think in those terms, okay? Why is it called Palm Sunday? Well, we're about to find out. Let's read verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now remember, this colt has never been ridden. It's never worn a saddle. So as your outline says, number one, they create a saddle with their cloaks, is what they do. They create a saddle with their cloaks, with their coats. It's important to note that Jewish pilgrims ascended into Jerusalem by walking, not by riding. You didn't ride into Jerusalem, you walked into Jerusalem. So this confirms the uniqueness of the Zechariah 9.9 passage that uh, Jesus uses as a symbolic act of, of the Messiah, the King, coming into Jerusalem. And then number two, they create a sort of red carpet with their cloaks and branches. They create a sort of red carpet with their cloaks and their branches. Let's read verse eight. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now John's gospel stipulates that they were palm branches. So it's called Palm Sunday. That's why. And by the way, on the Mount of Olives, now it's not true. Now it's, this is a giant cemetery. Um, uh, but back then, this was, was all, literally, the Garden of Gethsemane was a garden, and these were all palm trees and so on. It was all forested. And uh, so they would have very likely just ripped things off the trees like this, grabbing some off local trees and waving them and doing this and throwing them on the ground like a red carpet before, okay? Then number three in your outline, the crowd shouts messianic declarations. Messianic, I'll spell that. The crowd shouts messianic declarations. That's an N. Okay. Let's read verses 9 to 10. Those who went ahead and those who followed, so this is in front of him, behind him, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, as your outline says, Hosanna, which was a Hebrew word, literally means save. Literally means save. They were shouting, save. Okay? This word, Hosanna, had evolved into a shout of blessing or praise by the first century. So, now, in the highest heaven literally means in God's presence. So, what they were shouting was, be saved, or we are saved in the presence of God. They were just shouting that as a waving. We're saved in the presence of God. Or, hey, everyone, be saved in the presence of God. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, in the highest heavens. They're singing or shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There they are quoting Psalm 118, 26. This verse was used as part of the liturgy, part of the ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, a big party, and the Feast of Passover as well. So that was a common refrain that they, they would shout as they would parade into the city. Uh, it was used to bless people who were marching to the temple to worship. Um, and in this instance, it had a meeting that was more literal than ever before. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally, you know, they didn't realize the impact of what they were saying. They were shouting out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, this was a reference to Jesus' Davidic messiahship, okay? Now, the phrases that Mark quotes here are not an exhaustive list, meaning he's not reciting uh, everything. He's just reciting some of the things that were heard from the crowd. You can see, I, I gave you some passages there where you can see other phrases that people were shouting as well. And by the way, when you read Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, you see a picture of a humble conqueror. And that's exactly as Mark portrays Jesus. He was the king, but he comes humbly on the back of a colt, a donkey. He's a humble conqueror. And that's a great picture of Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. Okay. So that's the entrance, and then we pick it up in verse 11, the entrance into the temple courts. So here's the Messiah, a big parade, palm branches, everybody shouting, and what happens next? Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out in Bethany, he went out to Bethany with the 12. It's kind of like, wah, wah, like, really? (laughs) This big parade, we go in, we march in, we're all shouting and singing, hooray, he goes up the Kidron Valley, he goes into the temple, oh, it's late, it's closed basically, looks around, and he heads back to Bethany. (laughs) What's up with that, you know? Why, Why would he do that? It almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? But again, it challenges the concept of a messiah. One expects the Messiah to stride into Jerusalem and immediately take over. And that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus arrives. He wanders around the outer complex of the temple. And and then he returns. As your outline says, Jesus doesn't come as a tourist, but as an inspector. His judgment comes the next day. So Jesus doesn't come as a tourist, It's not as though this is the first time he's seen the temple. Ooh, look at that. No, he's been there many times. He doesn't come as a tourist. He comes as an inspector. And his judgment comes the next day. Let's, uh, yes. Does he go through the east gate of the temple? Well, the east gate of the city. The, The gate wasn't attached to the temple itself. The east gate of the... Of the city here. Yeah. But the gate is separate from the temple. Uh, yes, it's very symbolic. I assume. It doesn't say what gate he went through, truth be told. So he could have gone around and gone through any of these other gates. Um, and the gate that's there now is not the gate that was there then. It's a crusader gate. Yeah, it's all blocked up with the cemetery in front. And the reason why there's a cemetery in front, all the people who are buried here are Muslims. And the reason why they, it's a Muslim cemetery is because they recognize that a Jew could not, um, would be defiled if he went through a cemetery. And so they knew the prophecy, the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah to come through this gate, so they built a cemetery in front so the Messiah could never go through that gate. Fascinating. Okay, let's keep going. Of course, I think they're being a little more literal than... Anyway, well, that's another, that's from our Revelation study. Go back and study that. Number two on your outline, Jesus then returns to Bethany back over the Mount of Olives for the evening. So he returns to Bethany back over the Mount of Olives for the evening. And so this brings us now to the evening of Palm Sunday. So in your mind, it's last Sunday night now, okay? Last Sunday night. 
He triumphantly enters the, the city in a public messianic, public messianic display. He doesn't go inside the temple per se. He wanders through the temple courts. Because the temple courts, looking at it from above, if you can think of it, there was the, the court of just the priests. And there was the court of Israel, which was men only. Sorry, ladies. Men only. And then there was the court of women. And then there's the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles. So if you're here and you're non-Jew, like probably maybe most of them, not all of us, the Jews, non-Jews can only go here. And then there were signs. They still, they found these signs. There's signs that warning on the, the warning of death, if you go past this. And then the women, Jewish women couldn't go in here. And then men only, and then the priests there. So Jesus just went into these outer courts, it looks like. Okay, he didn't go in uh, to the others. So, and what he did was then, he looked around, then he walked back here, through or past the Garden of Gethsemane, up over Mount of Olives, and back the two miles to Bethany. He probably stayed at Lazarus' home or Simon the leper. Then, we have the next morning, letter D, the next morning, Jesus heads back now to the temple. So this is Monday morning. He heads back to the temple. We pick it up in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, what is going on here? Why is Jesus so upset with this tree? right? And why is he angry that it didn't do what it can't do, which is produce fruit out of season? Let me read you some quotes from history. One scholar years ago wrote this. He says, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it's simply incredible. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he singled out this passage for criticism. This is what Bertrand Russell wrote. This is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So he points this out as, here's an example why Jesus just isn't as smart and virtuous as people think he is. Okay? And he uses this as an example. So what's going on? There's more going on here than meets the eye. And someday we'll learn about it. Let's go to the next point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's more going on than visible on the surface here, folks. Okay? Mark is about to employ a literary device known as sandwiching. Okay? It's something called sandwiching. And what you do as a literary device for sandwiching, you've got... Um, what I'll call event A, okay, event A, and then you have event B in your story, and then you go back to event A. And when that happens, it's called a sandwiching technique, and what it tells you is that these events are linked somehow. There's something going on here where it's a sandwiching. Event A, B, back to A. There's something symbolic happening here. 
And the, in the situation we're about to read, event A is the cursing of the fig tree. Event B is the cleansing of the temple. And then he goes back to event A with the, the cursed fig tree. And they notice it again and he address, they, he, it's spoken of again. Okay? So these are clearly symbolically linked somehow in Mark's gospel. So let's see if we can unpack this quickly in our last 15 minutes together here. Number one, Jesus curses the fig tree. So Jesus curses the fig tree. That's clearly what happens. Now, by the way, fig trees grow to be about 19 feet tall. So these aren't little shrubs. These are, they can be large trees, okay? And there are two crops. There's the early fruit in the spring, and then there's the main crop in the, in the summer. And the presence of leaves are a first indication of the possible presence of fruit. So when there's leaves, that's the first thing they would look for as a possible sign that there might be fruit. When the leaves are in bloom, it's not a guarantee that there's fruit, but that would be a sign that fruit is possible. Also keep in mind that the fig tree in scripture is sometimes symbolic of Israel itself. Okay? It's often symbolized the health of the nation, both spiritually and physically. For example, you can just put this on your margin. Hosea 9.10. Hosea 9.10 says this. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Okay? So the fig tree and the early fruit and so on, that's a sort of a symbolic picture in scripture of Israel. So again, so let's read verses 12 to 14. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. So letter A, 1A, The leaves indicated the potential for fruit, and B, the potential was unmet. The leaves indicated the potential for fruit, but the potential was unmet. Okay, It wasn't time for, strictly speaking, yet, but it was getting early spring, and it had leaves. Oh, maybe there's some fruit. Oh, no, false alarm, no fruit. Okay? So what does all this mean? Well, let's keep biting on this sandwich and, and see what happens next. Then, number two, Jesus clears the temple. Jesus clears the temple. Let's read that in verses 15 to 19. Okay, so he passes the fig tree. Now he's into the temple. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Uh, Let's keep reading. And as he taught them, he said, it's not, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So what's going on here? 
again, over the centuries, scholars have different interpretations. The best two that I've seen over the years are the two that I've included on your outline today. Two possible interpretive options. First of all, number one, um, Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon those who've turned the worship in the temple into an opportunity to rob worshipers by charging ridiculous prices. It's like the government putting a whole bunch of tax on gas. Because everybody knows we need gas, so they just up it, and, and that's, you know, it, that's kind of what they did. So what's a money changer, for example? So what would happen is, you'd go to the, people would come from all over the world, but particularly all over Israel, and they would come to, to the temple for sacrifices and so on. But the thing is, if you lived way up in Galilee, you weren't going to bring animals with you. It's just not convenient. And uh, so what you would do is, you'd bring your money, your you know, Roman drachma or whatever the currency was, and you'd bring it there, and then you would buy doves or lambs or whatever the sacrifice is necessary. You would buy them at the temple. And this is the whole, there's a whole industry around the temple. The industry in Jerusalem was the temple. And again, this isn't a bad thing necessarily. This was convenience and there's nothing wrong with this. The this Old Testament allows for this. But what they were doing was this. Knowing that people were coming from all over, they had to worship at the temple, they were gouging them. And there were money changers because they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't accept Roman money with Caesar's image on it, you know, to be used in the temple. So you'd have to change your Roman money into a temple money. And they would charge this exorbitant price for that. It'd be like trying to buy American dollars, let's say, and at the airport and they just gouge you. That's what they were doing there. And charging ridiculous prices for doves and so on and so forth. And so Jesus was furious. People are coming to worship God and you are gouging them uh, in the name of God. And he's furious at this. Okay? You, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. That's one. In fact, that is the interpretation that I've always held as I've understood this. And I probably still do, except... I came across this second interpretation on your outline, which I find very fascinating and, and see some strength for as well. And this view is this. Jesus is not so much pronouncing judgment on corrupt business practices in the temple, though that was going on, but upon corrupt attitudes towards the role of the temple. I'll show you what I mean. Isaiah 50, uh, 56, 7, uh, which I've given you there, that's just the verse that Jesus was quoting. It has my house not called a... a, a uh, a, a place of prayer for all nations. But now I'm going to read Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15. Jeremiah 7, and you can turn to it if you want as well, but I'll read it. Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, a false god, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you didn't listen. I called you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, he destroyed it, I will now do to the house that bears my name, which he's about to do to the temple, as we're going to see soon. And the, the temple you trust in, And the place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So as your outline says, and before before we fill in the blanks, let me just say this. One author made this observation. I thought, boy, that's true. I've never thought of that. He said, a den isn't where robbers rob. It's where they go after they rob. It's their sanctuary. It's their hideaway. And so... Understanding Jeremiah here, because that's what Jesus is quoting, you've turned into a den of robbers. Here's this, op- this observation, as your outline says. They think being inside the temple protects them from the consequences of what they did outside the temple. They're thinking, it's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We can go out and do all this false stuff, and we run into the temple, and we're safe because this is God's holy place. And God's, Jesus says, no. This is called a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. It's where all you thieves and robbers and liars come and hide. Interesting insight. I'd never thought of that before, but that could be a strong interpretation as well. Or it could be a combination of the two. Who says it has to be one or the other? All right. Letter B. Jesus' actions provoke a hostile reaction, as your outline says. A hostile reaction from Jerusalem's religious elite. We see that back again in Mark 11, verse uh, 18. Well, we, we saw that, that when they heard this, they were furious with him. And they, now they had already been plotting to, to kill him, and now they're just continuing. This has been building since Mark 3, verse 6, if you've been following along with us, when they first said this. It was predicted by Jesus uh, when Peter made his messianic declaration. He said, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but here's what's going to happen. I'm, the, the Son of Man is going to be arrested and killed, and, but I'll rise on the third day. He's been predicting this for a long time. Many scholars believe that this action, though, more than any other, is what led to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Because if you remember, it was Jesus' words against the temple, about destroying it and raising it up again. He was speaking of his own body, but they thought he was talking about this. It was his words against the temple that are quoted against him at his trial. That's what really stirred them up. How dare you? The temple was sacrosanct to them. They idolized the temple, okay? Notice, however, that the crowds are still remain fully on on Jesus' side, um, it says uh, in scripture there, verses uh, uh, 18, the, crowd, the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching though. All right, then letter C, they leave the city and head back to presumably Bethany. Okay, so again, he's done with this. They leave the city and he heads back over the two miles, the Mount of Olives, back to Bethany. So he's sleeping in Bethany while he's heading into Jerusalem every day. Then number three, on the way back, they discover the withered fig tree. Okay? 
On the way back, they discover the withered fig tree. Now remember, when we last left the tree earlier in the day, it was in full leaf. Now, as they're heading back into the city the next morning, so they've gone back, now again the next morning, so it'd be Tuesday morning now, they're heading back into the city, uh, and they pass by the tree in the sunlight, and things have radically changed. We pick it up in verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Okay, and stop there. So things have radically changed here. This literary sandwiching technique shows that the fig tree and the temple uh, cleansing are linked. How so? Letter B. This is 3B. Jesus is turning a search for a snack into an object lesson on faith and spiritual unfruitfulness. So Jesus is turning the search for a snack at the fig tree into an object lesson on faith and spiritual unfruitfulness. 3C, Jesus went to the temple and he found all leaf and no fruit. Jesus went to the temple, he found all leaf and no fruit. Letter D, this foreshadows the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system. So it foreshadows the destruction of the temple, which is to come in about 35 years from this time. AD 70 is when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And Jesus is going to prophesy that in the next couple of chapters here in Mark. And uh, so this is foretelling what's about to happen to the temple and the whole sacrificial system. Number four, Jesus further links the withered fig tree with a lesson of faith and prayer. Verses 22 to 25. The last portion we'll look at today. He said, Have faith in God. So Peter says, you know, look, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Like, wow, you have powerful words. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, probably looking at Mount of Olives, perhaps, or even the Temple Mount, but probably the Mount of Olives, go, throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, uh, what Jesus is saying here is letter A, 4A, God can do remarkable things. He's simply saying, yeah, uh, the fig tree withered. That's right. God can do remarkable things. Now, is Jesus saying that prayer is all about working up enough positive self-talk in order to get whatever you want? Well, letter B, 4B, Jesus' hyperbole, I'll spell that, hyperbole, hyperbole, <laughs> hyperbole, which means exaggeration to make a point. When Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better to go into to heaven without one eye than into hell with both. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven with one hand than hell with two. That's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point, okay? It'd be like saying, oh, we killed them today. Well, no, it's an exaggeration. They didn't really kill them. It's, it's an exaggeration. It's a poetic device. Well, Jesus' hyperbole must be read in the light of the rest of his life and teaching. In Matthew 6, 10 and 33, that's where Jesus said, taught us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
in Matthew 6.30, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Uh, in Mark 14.36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? Uh, at the end of this week, uh, this coming week, uh, Jesus' Passion Week, he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows the crucifixion is about to take place. And what does he pray? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. And you said, and the truth is, if all I have to do is believe it, and it'll take place. Therefore, I pray that nothing, crucifixion will not take place. Well, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. The cup, as we learned previously, meaning the cup of wrath, the, the cup of tragedy. Yet, he said, not what I will, but what you will. That's Jesus' teaching on prayer. Um, you know, he, he taught prayer, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Seek first your kingdom, and then all this stuff will be added to, 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 to you. Take this cup from me, but yet not what I will, but what you will. So in other words, and this isn't on your outline, but Jesus is saying that prayer is placing your trust in God's ability to accomplish God's purposes through our cooperation. Prayer is placing your trust in God's ability to accomplish God's purposes through our cooperation. And Jesus is saying, when we are walking in a submissive and trusting relationship with God, nothing is impossible. That's what he's saying. Yeah, I cursed the withered fig tree. Yeah, it worked. But listen, all you have to do is just walk in relationship with God and whatever you say, whatever you declare will be done. Nothing's impossible for him when you're walking in relationship with him. All right, folks, we're going to stop there for tonight. Let me open it up for questions that you might have. See, this is the benefit of coming live. Any questions about what we learned today? It's really clear, wasn't it? I'm that good as a teacher. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, folks, God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight, and uh, we'll continue this next Wednesday evening. Hope to see you then. Thanks for being here.